Welcome to the Distrust and Disparities Podcast, Voices from the Margins of Healthcare. On this podcast, we will explore both current and historical cases of medical injustices within the American healthcare system. We will get into how we can overcome this systemic mistreatment, advocate for ourselves, and close the gap on poor health outcomes and disparities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Camille White. On episode 18, we discuss the racist history of psychiatry and specific diagnoses used to silence and discredit African-Americans fighting against racial injustices. And we highlight the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective, a network of healers and medical practitioners working to intervene and transform generational trauma and violence in our communities and movements. Welcome back. This is your host, Jasmine. And Camille. And as we mentioned last week, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we discuss some of the statistics, barriers to seeking help, and also a little portion of our own mental health journeys. This month, May has been pretty rough on our mental health, and I know our audience can relate and will feel the same. But we wanted to start off this episode by honoring the victims of the mass shooting that took place in Buffalo, New York. 10 people were killed and many more were wounded during this intentional racist attack. And I know I found out about what happened by scrolling through social media. And my first thought was just, oh my gosh, it another attack again like feels like we're just in this cycle of you know something terrible happens and then yeah you're on social media where I'm not on there to like get news I want to see like funny videos and maybe somebody's funny tweets and then we're bombarded with yet again something so tragic and we have to process it and then grieve and then we know that like things aren't really going to change. We'll get a lot of like thoughts and prayers from people who have control and power to actually affect change. But the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And like you said, with this being mental health awareness month, it's even more frustrating when it's just like, this is draining on our mental health. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's just so hard to process. And it's just, makes you just sad and depressed. And like we were mentioning last week, just this hopelessness because it just keeps happening. And what is the government doing? What are people doing? They're more likely to ban books than Mm -hmm. they are to ban these automatic rifles. It's it's ridiculous that this is the world that we live in. And like you were saying, a lot of times we find out about this news on social media. It's a good thing that we're able to record things. We're also able to share how we're doing and things like that. But we also see traumatic videos because I know on my feed, a picture of the weapon that was used and the suspect would pop up. Just 
every time you see it, you're just re-triggered and everything. There has been studies conducted on the effects of viewing violent news events via social media. So research has shown that it can cause people to experience symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Dr. Pam Ramsden, a researcher at the University of Bradford, she surveyed 189 people in a 2015 study. She studied their reactions to a range of events, and she found that more than one-fifth of respondents scored high on the clinical measures for PTSD from seeing just images on social media even if they had not experienced the events firsthand. Dr. Ramsdad, she states social media has enabled violent stories and graphic images to be watched by the public in unedited horrific detail. Watching these events and feeling the anguish of those directly experiencing them may impact our daily lives. And like we were just discussing, it leaves viewers feeling powerless and it also causes them to carry anxiety, depression, and this sense of helplessness and isolation. Yeah. And especially with this most recent tragic event, you know, people are concerned about doing something that like everyone does. You go to the grocery store whenever during the week so you can buy food and feed yourself, feed your families. And that shouldn't be a place where now, especially if you're a black person or you're a person in a marginalized community and you know that there are people out there that hate you for no other reason than they're just racist and terrible, that that space that you thought you could be comfortable in and you were safe in, that's no longer the case. And it's so important to really focus on your your mental health. We need to focus on our mental health and we all need to take time to even unplug from social media. It's not a must-have in our lives. I know it's become such a big part of our lives though and it's not going anywhere. But if you can, like take the time to unplug and just really explore your feelings and, you know, talk to friends and family members about things and don't bottle it up and keep it all in. And it's even also more important too to then have a creative or fun outlet. Go do something. Go do some activity that you enjoy. Go do a hobby and try to focus on something that brings you happiness. Mm-hmm. And if you still can't get out of this funk or shake this feeling of anxiety, depression, or helplessness, reach out to a mental health professional and they can help you come up with tools and provide you with the resources to develop coping strategies and healthy mechanism to deal with everything that we have going on. So make sure you take care of yourself and that you do what you have to do so that you can be your best self. So we're going to move on to our main portion of the show, our main topic. And as we were looking into different topics for mental health, I went down the rabbit hole and was just exploring some of the history 
of psychiatry when it comes to African-Americans specifically. And I found a lot of eye-opening information about the history of mental illness, especially when it came to diagnosing African-Americans. And a lot of the diagnosis of the times, they were based on societal norms and also biases of the time. And even as the field has developed and has focused more on scientific research, it has been hard to move away from some of these ingrained racist ideologies. So this week, we're going to explore some of these diagnoses that have been in the psychiatry field in America that has its roots in racism. So in the early 1800s, that's where we're going to start with this history of psychiatry. We have Dr. Benjamin Rush, and he is known as the father of American psychiatry. So Rush said that Black people suffered from something called negritude because of their darker skin, and it was thought to be a mild form of leprosy. And for this, you know, disease of negritude, Rush said the only cure was to become white, which is just like, (laughs) how does that even work? What is that even? Okay. And the irony of Rush having that medical observation and thought was he was a leading mental health reformer and co-founder of the first anti-slavery society in America. So like you put two and two together and it just it does not equal four and it just makes no (laughs) sense because what in the world are you talking about? And Rush even observed that Africans become insane, we are told in some instances, soon after they enter upon the toils of perpetual slavery in the West Indies. That quote from him is really important because you're recognizing that slavery is this terrible thing, but Mm -hmm. it's often not mentioned in discussions of mental illness in African-Americans, even though it is a valuable observation in understanding the traumatic impact of enslavement and oppression on Africans and their descendants. Like we never really talk about that. That's never really brought into the equation of what's going on with African-Americans and their mental health. Now we're starting to look at some of the links between slavery, the traumatic impact of slavery and Mm -hmm. current generations. Now they said there's something called generational trauma that's kind of built into your DNA. So there has been some studies that have looked into it. And I know we always talk about the withering hypothesis where it shows like how systemic racism and just dealing with racial injustices and different things can just erode your body and your cells and you can age a lot quicker. They're just now looking into that, but there's a lot more that we can tap into. And then in Around 1851, there was Dr. Samuel Cartwright, and he was a prominent Louisiana physician and even one of the leading authorities on medical care of African-Americans. So Cartwright, he came up with another two sort of mental disorders that affected enslaved people. So the first one, you know, apologize for this butchering of the name, but it was stupid anyway to begin with, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> Dia Sophia 
Ambipioca. So that was a mental disorder, apparently, that caused laziness among enslaved people. So, you know, signs and symptoms of this could include sulky and dissatisfied behavior. So that was one of his little stupid mental disorders he came up with. The other one was basically if that went unchecked, it could ultimately lead to dreptomania. And that disease caused enslaved people to run away. This is Cartwright, again, that we're Mm. talking about. And he observed that the cause in most cases that induces the Negro to run away from service is such a disease of the mind as in any other species of alienation and much more curable. And as therapy in order to keep enslaved people in check and provide an early intervention, he recommended whipping people at the first signs of his Mm. stupid mental disorders to get them back to where they should be enslaved and not questioning anything. And he also suggested that, quote, Negroes should be kept in a submissive state and treated like children with care, though, kindness, attention and humanity to prevent and cure them from running away. So clearly Cartwright was definitely pro-slavery, all all for it. Mm-hmm. And even when it came down to discussing black people in America who were free, Cartwright said, "The disease is the natural offspring of negro liberty. The liberty to be idle, to wallow in filth, and to indulge in improper food and drink." So pretty much we were meant to be in slavery. We were meant to be enslaved and any sort of freedom black people had, we would just be lazy and would be dirty and all a bunch of just ridiculous nonsense. But, you know, he was a Mm -hmm. leading Louisiana physician in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. And like we mentioned earlier, they aren't looking at the root cause, looking at the traumatic impacts of being enslaved, of the oppressions that are faced by African-Americans and what they're going with. That's the main reason, Mm -hmm. you know, having to work in the field all day, being whipped, having your family torn apart. Mm -hmm. What, What else would you expect? And basically you're blaming if people don't want to work or don't want to follow orders, that it's a mental disorder and that they should be whipped. Yeah. Because it's, we're not humans though. We're not actual people. We're, we're property. Mm -hmm. We're, we're basically cattle. So what would you do if your, your cow wasn't acting right is pretty much how we're being treated. And that's how you have this thinking and these so-called disorders and diseases that are being made up to then give a reason for white people to continue to control us because we're, we're property, we're not people. And when we start acting up, these are ways that, you know, you'll get us back in line, basically. Mm-hmm. And after slavery was abolished, they continued to say there was an increase in insanity amongst African-Americans. In 1895, Dr. T.O. Powell, he was the superintendent of the Georgia Lunatic Asylum. So he reported an alarming increase in insanity and consumption amongst African-Americans in Georgia. According to Dr. Powell, the sanitary and structured lives led by 
African-Americans, when they were formerly enslaved, served as protective factors against insanity and consumption. And he's quoted as saying, freedom, however, removed all hygienic restraints and they were no longer obedient to the laws of health, plunging into all sorts of excesses and vices, leading irregular lives, and having apparently little or no control over their appetites or passions. And he's basically saying freedom made African Americans go insane. They just didn't know what to do with themselves. They weren't following rules. We're wild animals. Just. Yes. We're just over here just eating everything in sight and just being dirty, nasty, just creatures at that point. I like. Ugh. And a lot of times the number of people insane, they did this to because they were looking for a reason to have free labor, cheap labor by saying, oh, they're insane. You know, they can't control themselves. They need somebody to tell them what to do was just so that they can have control. And Mm -hmm. they didn't look at after people were free, people were still in severe amounts of poverty. There was still this further disruption of family and kinship ties. Also still racism that you're combating, even though you're free, you're still having to deal with laws that are not set up for you. Mm -hmm. And other factors that may have influenced rates of insanity following the Civil War were, like we mentioned, starvation and poor nutrition. And this led to pellagra, which is a niacin deficiency, and some of the symptoms of this deficiency was a loss of appetite, irritability, and mental confusion. And this disease, it disproportionately affected those who were poor, especially in safe people because of their diet. They weren't getting enough of this niacin in their diet. So it caused some of these side effects as well. So also another thing of like, you're talking about control The 1840 U.S. Census showed a drastic increase in the number of free African-Americans that were deemed insane. And it was just all of these racist theories that were being used by pro-slavery people to claim that enslavement was beneficial to black people. Now, you did have around that time Dr. James McCune Smith, and he was an African-American physician, and he always challenged the findings of the 1840 census. And he wrote that freedom has not made us mad. It has strengthened our minds by throwing us upon our own resources. But like you said earlier, it was all about control and all about wanting free labor and Claiming that, you know, okay, so now they're no longer enslaved, but what can we claim that uh, is happening with African-Americans to then regain control of them and get them to provide, you know, cheap and or free labor for us? And it was to say that we were insane and that was a way to inflict more harm and control us because even then. If you're now saying a black person is insane, you throw them in a mental institution. But many of these mental institutions were maintained by black patients. And the Mm -hmm. primary treatment 
that was provided to a lot of African-American male patients was hard physical labor. And you're just like, oh, so we're insane, but, you know, we can go back to working again. We're, we're not too crazy to work. And mm-hmm. these mental institutions were basically prisons and they weren't treatment facilities for black patients. And it just makes no sense because you incarcerated these people in these asylums because, again, they're crazy, but they're able to perform tasks that probably required, you know, skill and focus but yet we're too crazy to be out in society, but we're not too crazy to what? Take care of the maintenance of a building, handle the groundskeeping, whatever you had them doing all for free because you wanted to control black people. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about many of these mental institution was the issue of housing black and white mental patients in the same facility, both Northern and Southern states struggled with this since many leading health experts at the time, they felt that it undermined the mental health of white patients if they were housed with African-Americans. So the government wouldn't pay for separate facilities, but mental health professionals, they were saying they shouldn't be housed together. And oftentimes, African-Americans, they would end up in these public housing facilities, such as poor houses or jails or asylums, and the conditions were inhumane. And like you were saying, many times they were forced to do hard labor, and then they had to go back to these inhumane conditions as well. So now with the some of the history points we're given, we're now up to the 1960s. So at that point in time, white people continue to try and silence and control black people. But this time, schizophrenia was used as their excuse. Prior to the civil rights movement in the 1960s, schizophrenia was predominantly diagnosed in white people. And so those diagnosed with schizophrenia, it was characterized as docile and harmless. Patients were commonly treated as unruly children, and they could just be nurtured by their psychotherapists. And another characteristic describing schizophrenics at the time was that they were delicate or eccentric, like possibly poets and academics and even middle class women. And, you know, they were driven to insanity by the dual pressures of housework and motherhood. In one of our resources, an article called Anti-Black Racism and Schizophrenia, Past and Present, the author points out that, quote, schizophrenia was never just a white disease. Rather, American mainstream culture defined schizophrenia as a disease that only afflicted white people and systemically rendered other groups invisible. But Like we said, that radically changed in the 1960s. Suddenly, you have these leading medical professionals describing schizophrenia as a disease that affected Black men, and it manifested in rage and not docility. So, you know, white people had schizophrenia, you know, harmless, docile little children, basically. Mm -hmm. Black men get it, you know, angry, rage-filled people. And like we pointed out, the 1960s, you have the civil rights movement occurring. You have 
you know, even more black people in America were fighting back against systemic racism and, and oppression. We're holding marches and protests. And you even have the rise of the black power movement. So again, here we are, African-Americans doing things, challenging things of just how crappy it is here in America and how we're being oppressed. And then all of a sudden, you're starting to diagnose people with schizophrenia. So psychiatrists of the 1960s went so far as to describe schizophrenia in black men as what they call protest psychosis. And that was characterized by hostile and aggressive feelings and delusional anti-whiteness. This theory of protest psychosis was used to demonize and discredit black protesters because, you know, we must be insane if we're out trying to fight for our rights and demand that we be treated equally, we have to be crazy to, to think Basically, that, I guess. that's what they say. <laughs> yeah, that's like, how dare these black people think that us white people are not treating them fairly is, is pretty much what you're doing. And they claim that such psychosis could develop if black men listen to speeches by Malcolm X or join the black Muslims or align with groups that preached militant resistance to white society. So mm, don't listen to those other black people that are telling you that this is all so terrible and you need to fight back. And Mm. that could lead to a psychosis. Jasmine, did you, did you know that 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 could lead to a psychosis? Cause I know I didn't. Yeah. Uh, It's just crazy how overnight this diagnosis just switched and they started to label black men with schizophrenia And Mm -hmm. it went even so far as they were developing new pharmacological treatments for schizophrenia. And they were clearly targeting Black men. And the one, we'll put it on our social media, the advertisement for Haldol, it showed an angry Black man with just his fists clenched and he's just enraged. The one researcher that wrote the book, protest psychosis he looked at a mental institution that was in Detroit and he studied how in the 1950s he looked at over a hundred patients charts and he compared those that were diagnosed with schizophrenia and originally it was just mainly white individuals that were diagnosed with schizophrenia and then After the 1960s, you're seeing more and more Black men being diagnosed with schizophrenia, and they're documenting their chart that they're dangerous, and they need to be locked up. The statistics, it was Black men, they were four times as likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia after the 1960s. And It went so far as the American Psychiatry Association, they revised and they republished its Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Health Disorders. So they put out part two. And this version, it was supposed to be more objective and based off of scientific information. And this was released in 1952. But the revised language that described 
schizophrenia. It turned it into a menacing disease that required containment. And it listed dangerousness as a symptom of schizophrenia as a way to justify the psychiatric treatment of Black people protesting against injustice. The author that wrote the book Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease, he is quoted as saying the DSM-2, the, that's the psychology manual, diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia most centrally reflected the social tensions of the 1960s America, a diagnostic text meant to shift focus away from the specifics of culture instead became insonorably intertwined with the cultural politics and above all race politics of a particular nation at a particular moment of time. And we're still seeing some of those effects to this day. So as far as like the theory of protest psychosis, it still affects the way mainstream media it describes protests today, like Black Lives Matter. Typically, the BLM protesters are characterized as being violent rioters when majority of the protests have been peaceful. And then even a 2018 study, it was a comprehensive analysis One researcher, he found that Black people are still 2.4 times as likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than their white counterparts. And this pattern has been consistent over the past three decades. And other studies say the rate is as high as three to four more times likely. And schizophrenia is a complicated disease to diagnose, but it just shows that these ingrained Races, ideologies, and theories are still used in what people think of schizophrenia. They think of manic, crazy, and sometimes, especially if they see like an angry black man and certain disorders, they want to label them with schizophrenia without exploring other different mood altering diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Cause that's it's what literally happened is another way to control black people, a disease in white people. You know, white people are harmless, but as soon as a disease is present in a black person, they become dangerous. And we even see this in how our society polices people. You know, white mm-hmm. people armed to the teeth, looking like they belong in some sort of military unit. They are not immediately, you know, taken out. But a black person who is unarmed and maybe has their hands in their pockets looking like an everyday person, oh, they're dangerous. Oh, whatever's in their pocket that, you know, no one can see because no one has x-ray vision must be some sort of weapon. Let's not ask questions. Let's immediately take them out. And then we'll claim like, well, I thought I saw something. And that happens time and time again where like, White people be walking around just ready to start a war and you know that they are prepared, but you can talk to them, disarm them, arrest them. There's they're alive. And that all goes into like how racism is everywhere and how dangerous this is. This stupid protest psychosis like that's clearly Mm -hmm. still present and affecting how we are being treated today. Mm hmm. 
also as the 1960s, as urban violence and inner city uprisings erupted due to the systemic racism that was taking place and also the fight for equal rights, Dr. Frank Irvin, a psychiatrist, and two neurosurgeons, Vernon Mark and William Sweet, they claimed that the urban violence and the uprisings were due to a brain dysfunction. And they argued that this dysfunction that was causing the violence could be surgically treated. So their agenda, they were advocating for lobotomies to remove a portion of the brain or remove the part of the brain that was supposedly responsible for this violence. And when Dr. Frank Irvin was describing why he wanted to do this surgery, he compared African-Americans to monkeys. And there was a huge outcry from African-Americans and either an other psychiatrists and physicians and specifically African-American physicians in the field that this is racist propaganda. Mm-hmm. If there wasn't any outcry, he wanted to move forward with removing the part of the brain that supposedly caused violence in African-Americans. And luckily they scrapped this idea and did not go forward with this, but there I was reading some articles that there was one doctor that was performing lobotomies on black children as young as five years old who exhibited aggressive or hyperactive behaviors. And a lot of times this research, it went under the radar or there's not much records of it because they changed people's names and it was kept in this medical circle that African-Americans weren't allowed to be in. Because they knew that as soon as someone from the outside looked at it, it would immediately be questioned. It would immediately be shut down. And at the end of the day, these racist people can claim that, oh, well, I think this or I observed that. You wouldn't be hiding it and keep it a secret if you didn't feel as though it was wrong. You knew what you were mm-hmm. doing was wrong. You knew what you were doing to these people was terrible. And to even go so far as to lobotomize a child, a child, where, again, okay, if someone is experiencing out-of-the-norm behavior as a medical professional who, you know, if you truly do care about everyone and you're not some terrible racist, you'll look into, well, what's happening in their lives that might have that occur? Not immediately, like, let's just carve out a chunk of the brain and they'll be fine. You don't really Mm -hmm. care about people. And this is just a brief history of the racist field of psychiatry, where there are so many other specific medical fields that we'll be talking about in future episodes, but we wanted to give like a highlight of when we talk about racism is everywhere in our country. Like these are clear examples of that. You Mm -hmm. have people that were known as the father of American psychiatry and like had clear racist ideologies that unfortunately are still present to 
this day and still affect us in significant ways. Mm -hmm. Especially with, as we were talking about schizophrenia, the labeling and the language used to describe schizophrenia, it still has not been able to shake the characterizations of a angry black man. So that's why it's even to this day, we have so many African-Americans misdiagnosed with schizophrenia because that image and propaganda has been so ingrained. And a lot of times societal norms and science, the line blurs Mm-hmm. And then this is just passed down from generation to generation. So we just wanted to discuss some of the roots of mental illness and the diagnosis and how it's been used as a tool to control African-Americans. As we have discussed, many of the research that has been done or some of the roots, it is rooted in racism. So we wanted to highlight an organization that is working to transform the way we look at healing, the way we take care of each other. So this week, we want to highlight the Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective. The Kindred Collective is a network of grassroots energy, body, and earth-based healers and health practitioners seeking to create mechanisms of wellness and safety that respond, intervene, and transform conditions of generational trauma and violence within our communities and also in our movements. This organization, it was founded in 2005 as a response to the trauma, violence, and social conditions, specifically in the Southeast region. And their mission is to utilize healing traditions as tools for liberations and individual and collective transformation. They envision a social justice movement and a world free of trauma, violence, and abuse. We chose this organization because they're looking to tap into our roots, our traditions to create a world free of trauma, violence, and abuse. They want to stop these cycles and the generational trauma and set forth a new path of healing and building up our communities and also within our movements because they notice a lot of our leaders are dying early or they just have not been sustainable. So they're looking at the total body and that's why they're calling in a variety of practitioners and they want to create healing models that are able to intervene and transform trauma, violence, and abuse in our lives and create a collective healing response so that we can sustain these organizations and these movements. And the Kinder Collective, they conceptualize what is called the healing justice framework. And that is also what our organization last week, BEAM, uses in terms of providing healing and wellness resources for Black people. And a healing justice framework addresses collective harm and trauma. And 
it's been developed to serve and support organizations and movements in considering trauma and healing and in building sustainable infrastructure models. So the Kinder Collective, they have four core values. One, a collective wisdom and memory towards collective well-being. Two, wellness as a tool of liberation. Three, interdependence. And four, all bodies and the conditions we live in. And I think really a big part of what the Kendra Collective is, is like we're building a community. They're building a community where we can truly depend on one another, but then we also look within our community to understand why we are all being affected by certain things and to remove, like you said, that generational trauma to address that. Because typically before, therapy wasn't addressing that in our communities. You're not acknowledging what, our people have experienced and continue to experience and how that's flowed down through our families, you know, some may be more overt ways, but it's so important to address that. And Kendra Collective works with organizers to hold trauma and memory through such things of like altar building, collective art, and ritual in the aftermath of difficult organizing moments. And the Kendra Collective has also supported organizations through conflict mediation, strategic planning, and facilitation. Because at the center of these offerings is trust as a political process and its essential component for collaboration and rapid response. So like always with our featured organizations, we will have a link to the Kendrick Southern Healing Justice Collective in our show notes. Please visit their website and their social media to learn more about their important work view their resources, and to donate. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The history of American psychiatry and mental health demonstrates how racism is deeply ingrained into our society, and it further proves that we must dismantle these systems that were created to harm and control us. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss, share your own personal story, or shout out an organization or individual, please email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod.